Welcome to the MathEd Podcast. My name is Chuck Munter, an assistant professor of mathematics education at the University of Missouri. One of my favorite opening statements to a paper in recent years is from Jim Hebert, who wrote, quote, Regardless of how difficult you think it is to improve classroom mathematics teaching on a wide scale, it is more difficult than that, end quote. That sentence captures a common and increasingly old lament in the field of mathematics education research. Through these years of attempting to affect widespread change, our questions, frameworks, methodologies, and explanations for the lack of change have become more varied. One consistent focus, however, has been the study of teachers' learning and practice. In this edition of our Digest format, we summarize three recent articles that fit within that tradition. First, Sam Otten will discuss an article by Karina Wilkie in last month's issue of Journal of Mathematics Teacher Education, which considers the challenge of changing teaching in terms of the interplay of external and internal influences. Next, I will summarize an article that considers resistance to reform within the very specific content focus of solving equations, written by Orly Buckbinder, Dan Chasen, and Michelle Capazzoli, and published in the January issue of Journal for Research in Mathematics Education. Finally, Jeremy Strayer will rewind to one year ago and discuss a commentary by Nicole Bannister on studying teacher learning in communities of practice, which was published in the March 2018 issue of Journal for Research in Mathematics Education. As always, we encourage listeners to consider becoming contributors to the Digest episodes of the podcast. If you are interested in submitting brief summaries and interpretations of recent works that you are interested in, please contact me or Sam Otten. I'm Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and I'm going to summarize an article by Karina Wilkie from Monash University in Australia. She studied different possible pathways for teacher change at the secondary level. Her article was recently published in the Journal of Mathematics Teacher Education and is titled The Challenge of Changing Teaching, Investigating the Interplay of External and Internal Influences During Professional Learning with Secondary Mathematics Teachers. And right away I should point out that I called it teacher change a moment ago, but in the spirit of Hebert and Morris 2012, I should say that this was actually a study of changes in teaching, not teachers. And Wilkie herself was very careful to make this distinction in the article. So with respect to algebra teaching, the context of this article was a design-based project in Australia involving a researcher and a group of teachers from a middle school. There were six teachers and the group worked together for two months focusing on algebra teaching and learning with the researcher offering some instructional ideas and tasks related to pattern generalizations and a functions-based approach to some topics in algebra. In addition to an initial professional learning session and the group planning and debriefing discussions that happened around the task implementations, Wilkie also collected a pre- and post-questionnaire about the teacher's experiences and beliefs, and data from the classroom experimentations, as well as from a teacher assessment meeting and a final individual interview. There were two main research questions driving the study, and to paraphrase, they were basically these. What changes in teaching were evident, and what constraints, both internal and external, seemed to influence those changes? To frame the questions, Wilkie combined two models of professional growth. The first was from Clark and Hollingsworth, which lays out various domains through which change can ebb and flow. There's the personal domain, such as knowledge and beliefs, 
the external domain, which includes information and ideas that come from others, the domain of practice, which is where professional experimentation takes place, and the domain of consequence, which is where we have the outcomes that are important to the teachers. Wilkie also drew on a framework of metadidactical transposition from Arzarello and colleagues, which also theorizes the change of teaching practices, but it adds in more aspects of the institutional dimension. Moreover, this MDT framework considers researchers' roles in the change process and acknowledges the fact that researchers could, and perhaps should, also change throughout the process of working with teachers. Using these frames, Wilkie generated accounts of practice and maps of teaching changes that were based on the teacher's own perspectives and self-reports of what was occurring in the design iterations. So the article contains an interesting blend of the teacher's own voices, but also the researcher's theory-based interpretations of what the teachers were reporting. The MDT framework also allows for some attention to the brokering process, whereby the teachers and the researcher together discussed, reflected, and interpreted the teaching and learning that they were seeing. With regard to findings, there were some apparent changes in teaching, for most of the teachers anyway. The pathways of change differed, however, and that sheds some light on the constraints that were influencing those changes. The first pathway of change involved a few teachers who took the initial experiences in the project and generated some new knowledge about teaching algebra. In particular, they gained new insight into the functions-based approach, and they learned about some potential tasks they could use. They then tried out the tasks and reflected upon the student experiences and outcomes of those experimentations in their classroom. So the basic pathway here is an experience in an external domain, to some new knowledge in their internal domain, to the domain of practice where they tried it out, and then some positive reflections and some feedback in relation to their internal domain and domain of consequence. There is more nuance in the article, of course, but that's the gist of the first pathway. The second pathway was different because there were a few teachers who already had some knowledge about functions-based approaches and things like the tasks that were shared. So their pathway went from the experiences in the project to the domain of practice where they tried it out. And then afterward is when they reflected on it and refined their own knowledge before trying it again. In both of these pathways, external to internal to practice, or external to practice to internal, there were important constraints and influences that Wilkie addressed. For example, in both cases, the teacher's beliefs about teaching actually mattering for student learning helped with regard to them being willing to try out the new tasks. It was also important that they believed student difficulties in algebra were rooted in the tasks and the opportunities to learn, not in the students themselves. Some external factors to consider were the common planning time that several of the teachers had together and their school's assessment expectations. The article also presents a third pathway, which was not a pathway to change, but rather a pathway to resisting change. One veteran teacher, who taught the advanced algebra class rather than the regular track, did not really take up the teaching changes that were suggested, and did not even implement the tasks herself, so in that way avoided engaging in the experimentation practice. She had initial beliefs that were different from the other teachers, in that she did place a lot of the onus on students themselves, rather than on instruction or opportunities to learn. She also had different learning goals than the researcher. Namely, she was focused on mastery of technical skills, whereas the project was attempting to focus on conceptual understanding and collective sense-making experiences. So this might have made teaching changes a non-starter. 
The fact that she taught her own advanced class rather than being part of the main algebra team was also a relevant external factor that probably contributed to her lack of change. One of the most compelling moments in the article is near the end of that section, where the teacher who explicitly said she wasn't going to incorporate the suggested teaching changes, and that she was happy to continue her disciplined approach focusing on formal skills and individual work, that teacher also expressed in her post-interview that she was frustrated with the lack of understanding of her high school students, and these are students who had taken her advanced stream algebra course in the past. This frustration which to the researcher seemed like a potential motivation for experimenting with teaching changes, was not internalized as a motivation by the teacher to change or experiment with her teaching approach in grade 7. This article was a detailed look at some teachers' receptiveness or resistance to change and the variety of complex factors that can come into play. An admitted limitation of the study is that it only looked at a relatively short time frame. And for me personally, I am very interested in the medium term or long term, to see what teaching changes might actually stick, or even possibly spread. Even in the short term, to change teaching was not easy, and there may be additional constraints or challenges that arise in the longer term. One thing the author pointed out, however, is that the changes that did occur may have been supported by the fact that there was collective reflection and discussion among the group of teachers. And perhaps this sort of professional collaboration around tinkering and experimentation with teaching practices could be something that sustains long-term change. And indeed, this sort of thing would connect with work in lesson study and professional learning communities, but with a specific focus now on frameworks for teaching change. Another big question that comes up at the end of Wilkie's article is the issue of how to find an entry point for working productively with resistant teachers. My colleagues, Andrew DiRaggio and I, have argued at AMTE that it is probably the most resistant teachers who are most in need of instructional changes. So we can't just work with the willing or with those whose learning goals already align with our own. We have to find ways to work with teachers who are different from us. Wilkie talked about the need for further research on how to broker conflicting goals. But I wonder if many researchers will view this brokering work as trying to figure out how to get resistant teachers to abandon their goals or attributions of students and join ours. I wonder if maybe we have to think seriously about us being willing to abandon some of our goals, at least temporarily, in order to meet these teachers where they are and map some sort of productive course forward, even if it is very modest and may feel like a concession at the beginning. Hello, this is Chuck Munter again from the University of Missouri. The long-standing research project known as Thought Experiments in Mathematics Teaching began with an NSF grant in 2004 and, with the support of two more NSF grants and a team of researchers and developers, has continued under the leadership of co-PIs Pat Herbst and Dan Chasen since then, producing a slew of research reports and, most notably, the cartoon character-filled classroom scenario platform lesson sketch. One of the articles in the January issue of Journal for Research in Mathematics Education is yet another installment of that project's overarching work. It was authored by Orly Buckbinder, an assistant professor of mathematics and statistics at the University of New Hampshire, Dan Chasen, professor of teacher education at the University of Maryland, and Michelle Capazzoli, a lecturer in mathematics and statistics at the University of New Hampshire. The title of their article is Solving Equations, Exploring Instructional Exchanges as Lenses to Understand Teaching and Its Resistance to Reform. 
As the title suggests, the analysis focused very narrowly on one of the essential foci of any algebra class, solving equations. The authors investigated teachers' reactions to mathematically correct but non-canonical student solutions. To help define what they mean by canonical or non-canonical, consider solving the equation 20x plus 5 equals 5x plus 65. The canonical approach would be to first use the properties of equality to get the variable terms on one side of the equation and the constants on the other. Again, the original equation was 20x plus 5 equals 5x plus 65. So, following the canonical approach, we would write 20x minus 5x equals 65 minus 5. Simplify to 15x equals 60, and dividing both sides by 15, find that x is 4. But that's not the only way to solve that equation. For example, we might notice that all of the coefficients in the original equation, 20, 5, and 65, are multiples of 5. So an initial step of dividing both sides by 5 could help simplify matters before we do any combining of like terms. The authors labeled this non-canonical approach as divide first. Two others might be to move everything to the left of the equation and factor, or to make use of structure. The authors argue that, with the focus on problem solving within mathematics education reform efforts, such non-canonical approaches would be excellent resources to consider alongside the canonical approach, and therefore teachers would hope to see such approaches emerge in students' work and would want to devote sufficient time to drawing connections between various strategies. To investigate these questions, the authors surveyed 77 secondary mathematics teachers from one Midwestern state whose teaching experience ranged from 1 to 40 years and averaged 13. Seventy of the participants were teaching or had recently taught a class in which solving equations was a focus, with the other seven specializing in Algebra II, Precalculus, or Geometry. The approximately one-hour survey was part of a day-long experience on a university campus and was administered through the Lesson Sketch platform, where questions were posed both with and without the cartoon storyboard scenarios. A total of 15 questions focused on three comparisons of responses to canonical and non-canonical strategies how typical teachers considered the strategies to be, how appropriate they considered strategies to be as evidence of student understanding, and the extent to which they would devote class time to discussing the different kinds of strategies. For example, in one of the scenario-based questions, in the left frame a student is at the board having just shared the canonical strategy, and the teacher says, thank you for sharing your solution. Class, now turn to your partner and discuss your solutions for the last homework problem. To the right, in response to a student's non-canonical strategy, the teacher says, You got it right, but this does not follow our general method for solving equations. Thank you for volunteering to show your work. Class, who can tell me what we would usually do first? These scenarios were intended to provide some instructional context for thinking about how typical, appropriate, and worthy of class time each of the two solution strategies was. Additionally, following each question was an open justification prompt. As a result of both quantitative and qualitative analyses of teachers' responses, the authors found that, on average, teachers were more likely to favor canonical strategies in all three comparisons. Teachers often found merit in the non-canonical approaches, but primarily as supplementary to the canonical. For example, in discussing the kind of scenario I described before, with the canonical strategy on the left and the non-canonical strategy on the right, one teacher wrote, quote, I definitely teach the first method, however, I'm willing to teach the second method as an additional option when the first is mastered." End quote. In their discussion, the authors assert that the findings are, quote, arguably an example of the resistance of teaching to reform ideas, end quote. 
Note that, as also emphasized earlier by Sam in his summary of Karina Wilkie's article, it's a resistance of teaching and not a resistance of teachers that these authors point to. In this case, they employ Herp's notion of instructional exchanges to help explain. Building from Brousseau's didactical contract, instructional exchanges are, quote, premised on the notion that teaching requires that teachers assess whether students' work indicates that students have learned what they are supposed to learn. Furthermore, the construct of instructional exchanges is meant to capture ways in which teaching as a profession develops mechanisms to support teachers in this assessment, end quote. And so, the canonical strategy for solving equations remains canonical, as it provides an efficient means for teachers to assess whether the students have become proficient in that fundamental goal of algebraic learning, and render non-canonical strategies less valuable and potentially confusing distractors from what really needs to be learned. One thing that I would have enjoyed reading about within this analysis would have been pedagogy. I can imagine ways that advocates of very different instructional approaches could all value non-canonical strategies for solving equations, but within some instructional approaches, they seem downright indispensable. Unfortunately, we didn't learn anything about these 77 teachers' pedagogical commitments to help further interpret their responses, nor do we know anything about the institutional settings from which the teachers came for the day-long experience during which they completed the survey. For example, as the authors acknowledged, it might have helped to know about the types of curriculum materials the teachers have used, as those materials may have, to some extent, mediated their perceptions of which ways of solving equations are most important and why. I suppose, though, that this paper was more about offering ways of analyzing than explanations for the findings. As the authors note in the conclusion, quote, the construct of instructional exchange helps us as researchers see in the specifics of classroom interaction the process of institutionalization of knowledge. This is a process where certain elements of disciplinary knowledge, like the canonical method for solving equations in one variable, receive particular importance in schooling as compared with other elements, like the non-canonical solutions examined in this study, end quote. In the end, the report provided little in the way of practical guidance for countering the resistance, but did perhaps add some clarity about where and how to look for it. Hey everyone, I'm Jeremy Strayer from Middle Tennessee State University. Today, I'll summarize Nicole Bannister's research commentary in the March 2018 issue of the Journal for Research in Mathematics Education. That commentary is entitled, Theorizing Collaborative Mathematics Teacher Learning in Communities of Practice. Dr. Bannister's purpose here is to convince math ed researchers interested in teacher learning to broaden their research agendas beyond individual teachers and individual classrooms to include larger teacher collectives. Multiple studies in the literature have shown that making space for teacher collaboration within the regular workday helps to increase student learning and improve working conditions for teachers. However, mandated programs that put pressure on mathematics teachers to work collectively are known to motivate contrived collegiality, inducing some teachers to just play community and behave as if we all agree. These programs can be placed inside of school structures that don't allow for deep engagement in efforts that actually improve instruction and learning. Dr. Bannister highlights that studies of teacher learning in collective settings often situate individual learning within the context of community, but methods in those studies can maintain an emphasis on individual cognition. In contrast, other teacher community studies consider community as a hub 
or maybe even the hub for meaning-making in which learning, viewed collectively, is interpreted as acts of participation within the normative practices of a local teacher community. That is, teacher learning is regarded as having occurred when changes in norms of participation and interaction occur in the group. Nicole next traces how the powerful results from this literature have been taken up, at times in unhelpful ways. Widespread drag-and-drop enactments of teacher community programs and unsupported top-down approaches to improvement-oriented work associated with the PLC movement have contributed to multiple problems. For example, static images of teacher communities have emerged, exemplified by beliefs such as, well, if we all just get people working together using this highly touted program, then improvements will happen. This sort of attitude can lead to related oversimplifications of collective teacher learning. Oversimplifications like, if you just follow the rules and play nice, then you won't need to address emergent difficulties within the community. Also, these oversimplified efforts can lead to idealized moral imperatives that merely encourage teachers to just keep working together with phrases like, where there's a will, there's a way. These types of oversimplifications don't recognize the real needs for additional support and workplace changes that are required for teacher learning communities to function effectively. For studies aimed at addressing these real needs, Bannister makes the case that communities of practice is a powerful theory for making sense of collective teacher learning. In this theorization, members of the community participate by taking on different roles and reifying that participation through the production of objects that provide points of reference for how they are making sense of what the community is doing. However, conceptualizing collective teacher learning as change in participation within a teacher community of practice can create an analytical challenge. Namely, virtually any action within the community could be seen as a potential indicator of change in participation, and thus teacher learning. Stated more simply, it's hard to know what to pay attention to in the community of practice as folks interact with one another. So to address this challenge, Bannister leverages frame analysis as a way of understanding the process of meaning-making within the group. Here's an example of how it works. Think about a situation where a teacher community of practice is considering how to help a struggling student. Different teachers may frame what is happening differently. Some may see the student as flunking out, while others may see the student as not being ready to learn. Depending on the frame chosen, different community members will negotiate different shared understandings of that problematic condition. These understandings and the reified objects that they produce can illuminate how the community assigns blame and causality, poses solutions, and calls its members to action in an effort to address the problem. So Bannister argues that an analysis of teachers' participation and reification patterns within the professional teacher community that attends to their framing patterns provides power to shed light on changes in participation in their community of practice and thus evidence of their learning. In this way, analyzing shifts in participation by attending to framing patterns over time provides more manageable units of analysis for understanding collaborative teacher learning. So for the mathematics education research community, Bannister's commentary proposes a solution to the problem of finding analytical tools for obtaining specific empirical evidence of teacher learning within communities of practice. The commentary itself dives deeper into the specifics of how communities of practice and frame analysis methods can be merged to help the field. So if you're interested, I encourage you to check out the commentary and the studies that it cites. 
Thank <laughs> you.